Welcome to the J3 University Podcast. Each week, we bridge the gap between science and in-the-trench experience for physique enhancement. I'm your host, John Jewett. Let class begin. Welcome, everybody, to the J3U University Podcast. Today, we will be having Scott Stevenson on as our guest. And Scott's been fortunate enough to make bodybuilding his primary means to provide service to others as an educator, a coach, author, and vital source of personal development as a better bodybuilder himself, who relishes in the journey over the destination. Along the, along the way, he's authored his books, Fortitude Training, and also Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach, as well as a dozen of online articles on the gym, lecture abroad, domestically, personal trained, and coach clients ranging from kids to firefighters to Olympia champions, and managed to step on stage a few times along the way, which I think a few times is kind of an understatement <laughs> for Scott. Uh, Scott has been training for nearly 40 years, coaching, personal training for almost three decades, and love learning, teaching, helping others so much. He earned a PhD in exercise physiology, became a licensed acupuncturist. So with further ado, the honored Scott Stevenson. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for reading that. I just wrote that up for Luke because we needed some sort of, you know, intro. I didn't realize how verbose it was. So. No, yeah, no. I was like, wow, this is great. I'm just going to roll with that. And yeah. it, uh, it, it covers you so well that, yeah, no, no other yeah. additions that needed. <laughs> right on, right on. Yeah, it's, it's another, you know, it's funny because people check in. I'm here in Florida and we're as loosey-goosey with COVID, I think, as pretty much any place, which is why they brought the Olympia here, et cetera, et cetera. And so how are your gyms there? I'm like, there's like nothing. There's like almost no restrictions. There's the, you know, the six foot rule is in place, but things are very, very good here. So I feel like really almost, almost guilty in a sense, because I know how, how rough it is for some people. I have clients in the UK and they're on, they're like, they're creating new categories of lockdown, I think, to describe what they're doing yeah. now. It's so bad. So things are, re- hopefully people can not, not want to reach to their computer screens and strangle me for saying that, but rather live vicariously and know like maybe there's some hope on the horizon because you know we're, we're doing it here in Florida so far. Um, yeah, Florida's kind of become the the safe haven of bodybuilding like if you if you can break through your quarantine lockdown and and escape to Florida you might be able to have like a bodybuilding show and, and <laughs> have some yeah. normalcy. Um, right. Yeah, Everything's coming down here. Yeah. Like. Do, you, do you have plans to try to get to, to stage this year or with with all the lockdowns, you just say, hey, I'm just perpetual off season for this year or I, well, I did three shows this past year that were like about five or six weeks out. So one was in Orlando, actually, I, say, I got two, to watch two you were in Orlando. What's that? I said, I was in the crowd. I got to watch you on stage. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. <laughs> My apologies. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I, I did three. We'll see what happens. Um, you know, for me, it's always been like this. One of the things I did this year is someone, Someone suggested uh, a good friend of mine who I trust. He's like, try to make it, keep dieting, see if you can make it down to the light, the light heavies, which would have, which made me lighter than I had been in like 20 years, like literally. I mean, it had been maybe 18 years since I've been that light. So I did that and suspecting that I might not look my all time best, but I knew I would figure some things out along the way. And for me, like, as we said, and as I wrote in that little bio, it's kind of about the journey and what I can pick up and learn. And some some phenomenal insights, some things about carving up and sort of surviving a low carb diet and then want to watch out what to watch out for thereafter were just like 
I mean, those are, those are insights you're not going to get unless you really, to some degree, no one's going to study that because you're not going to get a subject pool sort of bridging into our topic for today, our topics. You're not going to get people to go through a lot of those things, but you're going to get bodybuilders on an individual basis to do that. So, and I suffered through a, you know, and I use that word very, very um, carefully because this was a pretty rough, rough period of dieting. Um, I don't think of it as suffering if you're choosing to do it, but it was pretty, mm -hmm. pretty, pretty dang dastardly. And, but I learned a ton in, in, in how to get through that, what worked for me to be able to have some semblance of sleep and avoid all those, you know, the nastiness that comes along with free contests. But so as long as to answer your question, as long as I see sort of a reason um, or a way that I can bring more information into my noggin that I can then sort of help other people with, um, and, and of course, enjoy the process. That for me is an intrinsically valuable um, exercise. You know, I just like doing those things. So as long as I can find a fun and informationally laden experiment to create next year, then hell yeah, I'll be competing again. I'll figure out, you know, they'll keep on taking my money. I know that much. So I'll, I'll you know, and I'll figure out a way to get up there. And so probably, yes, I tend to do that when I have the opportunity. Within that prep, and I kind of have some insider knowledge that you were a uh, a author on a paper with was Brad Schoenfeld and um, Dr. Guillermo Escalante, yep. Yep. all all on Peak Week. So that's one that's yeah. going to be published and coming out. So right. I'm curious, did you actually get to? And this is probably going to be the most comprehensive um, review paper on a Peak Week strategy with the current evidence that we do have which is perfect for the topic that we're talking today. Do you actually find yourself like applying a lot of that or going against what you had recommended in, in that review paper on these past shows you did this last year? I, I do. See, I, I had written an article. I wrote some things online like maybe 15 years ago. And then I have a, a Peak Week article that I've, I've written numerous things for John Meadows site. And then in my Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach book, I've got like a 20 page section on how I've done peak week with people, just one strategy that can work. So, and uh, when the guys brought me in to write that paper, I had a lot of ideas already in form because I'd already written, you know, a chapter in a book and several articles. So I, I, I was already applying and doing all those things because some of those ideas and it's funny, we all seem to overlap and match in large extent what Chris Bearcat is doing um, and what Brad says he does um, with people, what Guillermo has done, there is a whole, a ton of overlap already. So it wasn't if I, you know, tried to go out and break the mold or it wasn't as if like, wow, those guys have a completely way of different way of doing things that I want to adopt. The one thing that was kind of new and different for me was for this second show when I dieted down to make a light heavy. So normally, you know, in the past decade or so, I would weigh in somewhere around 212, 215, and the day before the show or whenever it might be at a national level show. So you kind of get there as, you know, weigh in. And so we're right in the middle of the heavyweights, not the top. So I'm kind of getting outsized and conditioning would be the thing that would carry me placing wise, if, if anything. And then, you know, I might end up even lighter, usually I end up lighter and drier than um, thereafter almost every single time. And so this time I had to get down about, you know, 14, 15 pounds, but in time for a weigh-in. And in doing that, I was in a set of circumstances I'd never been in before. Uh, 
And I basically went about five weeks with an essentially zero carbohydrate diet, which is, is a rule breaker for me. I did break that rule because I don't like to see people training because you lose, lose the ability to train hard to some degree when you're lacking in glycogen. You just don't have the fuel available for the sets um, in the way you would be ideal. So I don't like, to, my rule of thumb has been don't train more than maybe twice without some form of a carb up to replenish the glycogen in the muscles you've been, you've been training. Well, I totally violated that. It was, I think I, it was like 14 or 15 workouts, um, training sessions, which for me are not high volume, but that was over maybe four or five weeks between the two shows that I'd gone without any form of a carb up. Um, except I did do a practice run and I've talked about this on my podcast. So some listeners may have already heard this before, but I did a practice run just to see what a carb up would be like. And I always suggest people do that. Um, that way you've got some, if things go totally awry in a way that's unexpected, it doesn't matter because it's not on show day. And then you can figure out hopefully what caused that, that error and then correct it the next time around. And when I did this carb up, I'm trying to think, I, I remember talking with Chris Bearcat about this. It was very modest. It was maybe grams of carbs um, and nothing crazy. It wasn't like I just, you know, went to the vending machine and started stuffing down all the processed stuff I could find. And the cramping was just ridiculous. It was literally ludicrous. And the thing that I think may have been going on, at least in part, was one of the things that happens, and this is in our review paper, and I mentioned it in my, in my book and elsewhere, is that you, you can pretty much, potassium is intracellular electrolyte that really needs to be in enough abundance to be brought into the cell during the process of glycogen loading. And if it's not available, um, you won't glycogen load. It's part of the osmotic effect that comes with pulling water in with glycogen, which is why we glycogen load to fill the muscle up. So there's actually been studies where people are deficient, avoid an intracellular work too of potassium, where if potassium is lacking, you don't get the glycogen synthesis. It just doesn't happen. On the contrary, if you've got a scenario where <laughs> you haven't had any carbs, substantial carbs for weeks, and your glycogen levels are really, really low. And those are probably about as low as I can imagine them getting after all that training. The cumulative number of sets was more than enough given what we know resistance exercise does to reduce glycogen. That when I put in those carbs and they started being taken up in the skeletal muscle, the potassium was coming along with that as the cell was volumizing and trying to maintain its electrolyte gradients um, across the cell membranes. I probably became hypokalemic substantially. And I fought it. I like, I figured that might happen. I've had that a little bit in the past. So I was using taurine and a, and a potassium supplement and a multi-mineral supplement. Um, I was drinking tonic water. Uh, I added some sea salt just to get some sodium in there too, just to just try to feed my body everything it possibly could have in terms of sorting out whatever electrolyte difficulties were in play. And I th think it may have been magnesium that was maybe the helpful one. Not quite sure, and I'm not exactly sure why that is the case necessarily. That's obviously important for a number of different, hundreds of different enzymatic processes as a cofactor. So, but I, I, I realized that trying to carb up in, you know, rapid fashion after having been glycogen depleted for so long is going to be a, it's going to be a difficult issue and going to have to be very, very careful. These cramps were 
literally I, I ate, obviously the food was delicious. Um, I was at that time trying to like meter my water so that I wouldn't spill in this practice run. So I wouldn't spill and have just enough to fill up. Um, as it turned out, when I actually did the real carb up for the show, I was taking in glycogen so well that I gained like, and I'd sort of figured out how to make this happen. I gained like, I think eight pounds of scale weight from beginning to end in, in like 24 hours. And I did not spill at all, not one bit because there was so much room. So but the bottom line was that you need to be careful because this is something that happens with people who do periodic carb ups when they've been low carb for a while. Not in this extent, but I was literally like, I would lie there and, you know, start to get a little bit of cramp and say my quad. And I, then I go to, you know, bend my leg to sort of pull the cramp out. My hamstring would go on that side. And then I'd try to inch myself over to like get that leg into a better position. And then my glute would go on the other side. And I was like, okay. So I get up and I go grab my taurine and my multimineral and drink some water. Remedy that for the next 45 minutes. This is throughout the night. So probably five or six times I was woken up by cramps happening as my body's trying to figure out what's going on there with the electrolytes. So that's, that's just the short encapsulation of, of one particular thing that I figured out. And I think I have one, you need to kind of extend the carb up out and precede all of those carbs with providing lots of those anti-cramping strategies. So make sure there's plenty of electrolytes there. Um, I think the quinine probably helps with tonic water. Um, taurine seems to help a lot of people. Um, as the mechanism, I don't know what that is. I've looked for that. No one's, I've never found any, anything that, that satisfied my curiosity as to how it works. So that was really, uh, that was like a, almost like it was like a brand new form of, of prep for me. That, I've never had that experience in a carbo. So that was really kind of, I was literally laughing at myself at, at night. I'm like, this is so cool. Most people would have been freaked out thinking they need to call 911, but I, I felt like I had it under control. And I was really like, just almost enraptured with the fact that I've got this crazy physiological circumstances that I've kind of created for myself in my, my lab. Like all the beakers were like overflowing with bubbling juices and like Dr. Frankenstein was, you know, in his, in his mania watching this happen. So um, that was something that all the no carbs for so long and then carving up in that way was something that um, I hadn't done that we don't cover necessarily in that paper because it's, it's already a, a monster. It may be too, too big in its current form for publication. Actually, we may have to cut it down. I think we may have exceeded some of the limits that most journals um, allow for review articles. So those are all super interesting insights to collect like along the prep way. And it's, it's always such a great data collection when you are, when you are prepping and uh, yeah, I actually, it's funny. Cause I was, I was just reading a paper uh, regarding clinbuterol and mm -hmm. rats and giving these excessive dosages. Um, it was like 500 micrograms per kilogram of body weight, which just a, a good amount. And, uh, <laughs> and they were talking about taurine depletion. You yeah. brought up taurine mm -hmm. and it, it would deplete it in the heart, lungs, and kidney levels and it affecting the ion exchange and leading to like tachycardia. However, in skeletal muscle, it was actually increasing the levels of taurine. Um, which I, I, I didn't dig deeper into, but I found that mm -hmm. was interesting because a lot of people will get like muscle cramping, taking clenbuterol and they'll take taurine, but mm -hmm. potentially some of the other research was saying this might be more into hypokalemia, 
than the taurine issue. And so, you know, we, we associate cramps with one variable, but just like you brought up in your peak week, gosh, it's hard to really nail it down, right? Because you have yeah. sodium and magnesium and, and carbohydrates pulling. It's like, which one do you really focus on? So that's, that's why we have to have that logical thought process and collecting data along the way to try to try to tease out those variables. But right. I think well, uh, the interesting thing you said there before you go on is that that the cramps seem to be a function of the what the neurons are doing, not what the skeletal muscle is doing. Mm. So like depolarization of skeletal muscle or the sarcolemma skeletal muscle, which is actually what happens when the fibers contract is something that, that really is only gonna be initiated if it's, if it's begun at the neuromuscular junction. And the reason I, I sort of know that is from having done some work with electrical stimulation, e-stim, and they can give um, uh, curare, like you can curarize muscle which blocks uh, the action of acetylcholine and depolarizing at the neuromuscular junction. And when you do that, you paralyze. That's what like the, and I think it's in South, South America, the, the, the darts the, that they would shoot and they hit you with one of that and you're paralyzed. Like literally that's, it's action. That's from, it's the, the curare is derived from a, a plant that's found down there in the, in the Amazon, I believe. And if you've curarized a muscle and paralyzed it in that sense, and you try to use e-stem to evoke contraction, you won't. Um, and you can get a contraction, but you have to, <laughs> And they've done this in animals. I don't think it's been done in people, but you have to crank up the voltage or the current so high that you literally just end up burning the skin before you'll get the muscle fibers themselves to contract. Oh, wow. so, so the fibers don't, aren't really the issue. And for a long time, I sort of thought that was the case, but I think it's the neuron, it's the, it's the depolarization state in the neurons that's really the issue. So yeah, that factoid about computerol depleting taurine in the neurons is, 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 makes sense that taurine then would be the remedy um, the fact that it may increase it in, in uh, uh, skeletal muscle is interesting. I wonder if that's because it's being lost from all those other cells and it's just being taken up by the skeletal muscle, you know, have to follow the flow of the taurine, you know, in and out of the different cells right. and the different issues. But um, yeah, it's the thing. And another thought that occurred to me too is, is that I, what a thing I was doing a little differently this time was trying to do a carb up, presuming that the, the show is the next day. So kind of a last minute carb up. Mm -hmm. And that's not how I prefer to do it. I prefer to get the carb up done, fill the muscle with glycogen. And this is where I think Guillermo and everyone on, the, on that paper was in agreement. Just sort of makes sense to fill the muscle with glycogen, deal with the cramps if you show have to or whatever it may be, and then leave it there without posing excessively because it's going to stay for three, four, five days uh, once you're super compensated. And then you sort of do one thing at a, at a time. And I think where a lot of people just sometimes because they have to make a weight class, you know, they don't have much of a choice. They want to fill up somewhat, but they're trying to juggle drying out with carving up at the same time. And those two processes are kind of diabolically opposed to one another, trying to fill muscle in the skeletal, fill water into the skeletal muscle. And which, you know, you're going to have sodium available for taking up the glucose in the gut and at the muscle cell. And sodium's not going to help you lose water. That's for sure. Right. So, Doing both those things at the same time then leads to, of course, diuretic use, which evokes its own set of issues. So anyway, like peak week is, that's why we wrote this paper, put yeah. it together, infinitely complex. So fascinating topic. No, yeah, definitely. I think everything that you, you just stated all roots back to our 
what we do as bodybuilders is self-coaches. And it comes kind of around to our topic we were going to focus on today is, um, you know, defining evidence-based coaching and, and what that has really mean and um, how the term or concept has been misused or misapplied within our community and how people manage their clients. So, you know, Scott, if, if you don't mind, how, how do you define your, yourself, like evidence-based coaching? That's a really, I, I wouldn't presume to be the person who can kind of create that, that <laughs> definition. We're, we're going to publish like, this definition. Yeah, you're going to exactly. be lied to it. <laughs> right, right. Like Scott Stevenson says, we're going to argue by authority. Like Scott Stevenson mm -hmm. says, you know, this is, this is what evidence-based coaching is. The Mary question becomes, what, what's that, Luke? Go ahead. That's that Merriam-Webster bodybuilding dictionary. <laughs> there, there you go. That's my, that'll be my next one. I'll come up with the, I have the, I have the coach book and now I'm going to have the bodybuilding dictionary. I'll just define everything. So it's black and white and then we know. Half percent cut of that. Go. <laughs> right on. <laughs> You'll definitely be, you know, mentioned. Um, so what, what is evidence? I think is what it kind of comes down to. What constitutes evidence? And there's so many different ways. And this is what Luke mentioned um, in the questions that he sent. That maybe we could reference what I've said in my book. I've, uh, there's a, uh, I've picked this up in grad school and I give a citation for where this information is found. There's different ways of knowing things, of coming to know things. And in the bodybuilding world, sort of the evidence, it sort of parcels itself out into kind of two compartments. There's, there's what the bros see in the trenches and what they experience. And then at the far end then would be the published scientific research. And those are forms of evidence. And you can almost think I've, I was pondering this, this podcast here, you know, the, the topics that we go over and it's, you, you might see like in a court of law, if there's been like some sort of a murder that's gone on and, and you've got an, an eyewitness, someone watched that the murder occur and they saw the person pull the knife out and stab the person in the back alley. And so they have an eyewitness. That's one form of evidence which is subject to all sorts of things. There's eyewitnesses that, you know, cases where eyewitnesses have recognized that they have misidentified the potential culprit and people have been put away for those sorts of things. So that's evidence that can't, even experiencing it firsthand and seeing it can be something that can be totally flawed. And another piece of evidence might be, well, you know, we found, I'm gonna use an easy one that everyone can, can recognize, but we found that the, the fingerprints on the knife match the person who's who's being accused of this murder. Well, that's a form of scientific evidence. I think fingerprinting is a pretty solid science now, but the thing that many people I think often do who haven't been, haven't been inundated in science, haven't been trained as scientists, taking graduate level courses or degrees is, is they take the idea of like a scientific study with, which has, has an abstract, which has one concluding sentence or remark, making one sort of generalized statement to think that that's sort of a black and white stamp of approval or disapproval for some particular notion, just in the way that a, a, um, a, a, a fingerprint would say, well, it's either, you know, John Smith or it's not John Smith. And that's a pretty black and white type of thing. As far as I know with fingerprinting, it's, you know, you're going to pretty much figure out whether that person's fingerprint matches or not. But the scientific research is not at all a black and white situation. It's very, very, very nuanced. So as far as evidence goes, there's all sorts of evidence that can be brought into coaching. And I think the trick is, is to be able to recognize what the limitations of that evidence is 
on both ends of the spectrum and then weigh those limitations and the strengths in a way that makes sense given the context. And that's sort of where the art of coaching kind of come into play. Do you have a, yeah, look, I got a thought brewing there, Luke. Go, I'm gonna let you finish, but I do oh, okay. have a question. Yeah, so, so you've got, like, for instance, if we take, take the situation where someone has literally observed something, they've observed the murder. This might be akin to the, the situation where you've got a coach or someone like myself who likes to try things out and figure things out on their own. So let's say I wanna find out if like, let's say beta alanine is an effective supplement for me. It helps me train harder so that I can get, I, I make better gains. And I've done the best job I possibly can to keep everything else in my training regime, my diet, my other supplements, everything else is exactly the same time of training. And all I've done is added in beta alanine. And I find that there's an effect there. Well, then I would go into say, well, this is because, you know, we've increased carnosine levels and we're buffering better and et cetera, et cetera. So I've got better training, better training stimulus so I can train harder, get more reps with a given weight. And that's how, how that works. Whereas if you don't recognize that a limitation there could be that every time I go in the gym, I know I've taken beta alanine. I know I'm testing this. And not only that, but I can feel that little buzz that I get, that little, that little flushing. It's like, now I'm supercharged, baby. I'm on beta alanine. Not that you're having like that sort of, um, you know, excited thoughts running through your head, but there's a potential for a placebo effect. And placebo effects can be very, very, very powerful. So we have to recognize before saying, well, beta alanine certainly works for everyone. The fact that you're personal subjective experiences of beta alanine can be very, very clouded. A friend of mine would all, always say, um, she's like, this is what I think, but I don't know. I live in here. You live outside of me. So maybe you can give me the different perspective. And it's, so it's very hard. You can't truly be objective when it comes to your own subjective experiences. It's basically, that's an impossibility in the, in the world as we sort of know it. I think most people would agree. Whereas if you look then at the end of at the science end of things, there's the fact that if in a given study where they've come up with some conclusion, what have you, there's all the potential limitations of those particular research studies. So were those, and the biggest one that most people have who are doing evidence-based coaching, which usually means with higher level people, is that those individuals, those are multiple individuals in a scientific context, which can be very different than the gym. There's all sorts of issues there that can affect performance during training sessions and outcomes. And we're talking about a given sample of people who are supposed to be representative of a population. So if your sample are untrained individuals, there's certain advantages with using those. Those are representative of, the, hopefully, of, an un, of the untrained population, which may not be at all representative of you or your clients who are not untrained, who have already so like those are just some basic ways. So then you have to you have to look at those two pieces and say, okay, how do I juggle these? You know, this is what I've seen. You accumulate more and more evidence. So I've got 30 clients I put on beta alanine and some of them can't tell whatsoever. Some of them don't like the buzzing, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's evidence. It's absolutely valuable, incredible evidence. And I tell you what, if it's, if it's a placebo and it works, then it works, you know? If it's hypnosis and it works, then it works. The bottom line is we figure out ways to make things work. And I think sometimes if you're more inclined to look at the science, the scientific publication aspect of things, people want to know that it works because of the suspected underlying mechanism 
that's in place. It works because of this. And I've heard some people say, differentiate between, you can kind of see this in the definitions of these words, between something being effective and being efficacious. And effective means it worked. It effectively brought out, you would think by some sort of a cause and effect, but not necessarily the, the desired effect. Whereas efficacious means that it's bringing about the desired effect because of the underlying mechanisms that we're trying to impose upon the situation. So it's working because we think of the way we think it's working, not because of just some random effect. So anyway, that's, that's so that as far as evidence goes, I think evidence-based coaching is taking all of those bits and pieces in and sort of accumulating the, in the own personal coach's paradigm of what he or she weights as being important and the value of those things, throwing out the stuff that's nonsensical and keeping the stuff that seems to make sense and then applying it through trial and error. And even, even especially hoping to find that you're wrong because it's easier to find out like, well, I can figure out a way to make it seem like I was right. But if you find a particular instance that suggests something you, in science, you, you have a hard time actually proving something. You really can't prove something. You can just, you could have an experiment, 20 experiments in a row that say that beta alanine increases muscle strength gains over the course of a you know, training period, eight weeks or longer something like that. And so, but that just means that using the statistical inference that we have and the people that were studied there, that this was the finding. It's pretty sure shot the next time you, you do a study with those parameters, you're going to find the same, have the same finding. But it doesn't prove it. It doesn't mean it's always going to happen for everyone at all times whatsoever. But you can, if you find one person for whom it doesn't work, in a way you can say that disproves it. That means it's not always going to work. So it's a matter of taking your best shot, putting together the best picture and using all the evidence you can and then applying that and then hoping you find some anomalies in both directions and then feeding that back into your, into your paradigm, into your algorithm, so to speak. So that's, um, that's, like, that's like three page, that's an encyclopedia entry, I think. That's not a dictionary entry for evidence-based <laughs> coaching, but hopefully that, that gets us started at least with some notions. Yeah. And so this may kind of start to push us into the next bridging into the biggest gap. But one of the things that I saw, especially as I kind of made my way through grad school and then post-grad school with reading research and conversations with other people in the coaching realm is that, you know, I kind of view literary research as like generalities and thought processes and just kind of wanted to get your take on this is it's going to push us to challenge ourselves and what we apply within our, within our coaching realm and it's generalities and thought process but it's not going to be the specific application of, and you kind of alluded to this with like talking to the peak week, you know, sometimes the peak week paper, sometimes you're going to be forced in that position where you got to make weight and then spend that one day carving up. There's going to be a lot of situations in which we have to take it outside the realms and scope of what literature can encompass as far as like studies as a whole. So as we kind of transition into like, where do we have gaps? Like, do you, do you view literature as like this generalities and thought process that we can take to guide decision-making but then gather our own information with testing within our clientele. Yeah, the, the, thing, the thing is, and it's funny that you, you're, you, you kind of, you, you backed up the thought I had before that is a really kind of, it's one of the biggest, I think, gaps is that in the scientific literature, most of the time, there's just a huge gap in terms of studying highly trained individuals. And the, the, the kind of the catch 22 with this, um, is that 
the reason you study untrained individuals is because they respond so well, it's easy to get a high magnitude effect, which helps with statistical inference and, you know, seeing if something, some intervention does or doesn't work. And so, the, so the irony of that is that in those individuals, they have, they can pretty much get away with doing anything and have getting an adaptation. They're going to grow really, really well. So that makes that, that information from those studies less valuable in terms of externalizing the validity, taking that and applying it to higher, um, more trained individuals. So what works for a newbie won't necessarily work for someone who's been at it for eight years is trying to get, you know, five more pounds of stage muscle, for instance. So it becomes pointers. It's it basically sort of, I think, I can't remember exactly how you phrased it, but it, it gives us some idea, like there seems to be some something going on with this supplement or this frequency of training or whatever it is that's being studied that does work in these highly sensitive individuals. It doesn't necessarily mean it's absolutely going to work, but at least this gives us an idea that something may possibly work so we can give it a try. And the tough thing about that is it's, in order to like figure out if those things actually work on a group setting for advanced individuals, one, you're going to have to have so many, this is just the, this is one of the, it's a disadvantage of statistics as we use them is that if you have a very small effect, meaning, you know, we're talking about, let's say four pounds of muscle being something you consider practically significant over the course of a year, then it's going to be hard to pick up, put that up in a group that gets the intervention versus one that doesn't, unless you have a lot of subjects and especially there's going to be a lot of variability there too. So the greater the variability, um, and the smaller your effect size, the more subjects you're going to need. You're going to need, and it's you're going to have a heck of a time finding large groups of highly trained individuals who are going to just sacrifice a year of their potential progress for a scientific study of this nature. Especially knowing that they might end up in the control group or the placebo group or what have you. And it's like, well, sorry, you know, we might promise you a year of training on the on the other end. You can do a crossover design. So what happens if you make the good gains the first year and like you notice like, something's different, things are slowing here. Well, I'm just going to drop out of the study. Well, then, you know, so it's, it's, you have to sort of be, I think, um, I think we have to be satisfied to some degree with, with that very important limitation. But it doesn't mean that that information is just worthless. It just tells us that, it tells us that there's, there's something potentially going on there that we have to kind of try to apply. And that's where I think the, you know, the coaches who have, work with a lot of advanced people and figure out these things on their own and their own training with their advanced trainees can then decipher whether those things make, make any sense. So yeah, that's, that's the biggest gap I think with applying, applying that information. And here's the thing that, you know, that's, it's sort of, it's pretty, it's fairly rare. You can probably count on, and you're probably lining these people up, I hope for your podcast on the, on your hands, the number of people who have some formal scientific training, as well as have been at it in the gym for any period of time. So, so often I, you know, I get questions from people on Instagram or Facebook or what have you from potential clients or just people inquiring and they say, I asked my professor and this professor has been at it for 20 years. He teaches a class on exercise physiology, something about weight training, resistance exercise and, and muscle hypertrophy. And they have no clue whatsoever. So, so far outside their realm of expertise, all sorts of amazing, intricate details about things related to their area of expertise in exercise physiology or even muscle biology. But it, when it comes to 
getting in the trenches in the situation that those people are talking about, those professors have no idea. So bridging that gap between the bro who's out there banging it out and the guy in the ivory tower, there's not a whole lot of people in between. It's, and that's where I'm trying to be as much as I possibly can because I can speak to both of them. So I'm like the interpreter. It's like, okay, yeah, this, this guy said effect size. So here's what effect size is. We need to take the difference of the means divided by the standard pool, this pooled standard deviation. <laughs> Let me explain to you what that means. And I can break it down like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But this guy has no idea how to explain it to this guy. The, the bros never understand the gobbledygook that may come out of the science's mouth, which is what you often find published in the studies. So that's the hard part is taking that information and then and recognizing, you know, where its limitations are. And if you're just, if you're an average person, I mean, there are so many, I'm, I'm ignorant in almost everything in the entire world, relatively speaking, compared to what I happen to know about muscle biology and exercise and, and bodybuilding. I don't know jack diddly about anything. I actually love being a newbie in things because it opens up a whole new world of exploring. So I can't expect someone who's been, even someone who's been a fairly advanced trainee to have advanced level of how science is carried out in a soft biological science like exercise physiology. Um, so that's just going to be a big black box to those, those folks. Like, I don't know, I have no idea what this means. I'm like, what the heck is going on in this? I just read the bottom line. I'm like, okay, like, no, that's bullshit, you know? And, and that's unfortunate because the way I see it, there's basic research, which gives you foundations upon which to do applied research. And the applied research is the stuff that should then be applied to people's lives in some way, shape or form. And bodybuilding is, you know, it's a first world luxury, really, you know, <laughs> we're force feeding ourselves so we can look better in the mirror and on stage in our underwear when it kind of comes down to it. It's also a hero's journey. You know, there's something in, in, within us that, that makes many of us who have sort of a warrior's archetype built into our psyche want to seek out those things which are, which are challenging. And bodybuilding can be a penultimate challenge. You can feel like you're going to die. And when you overcome that, there's intrinsic value in that. So I'm not minimizing the value of, of bodybuilding as a means to sort of personal growth and self-evolution. But when it comes to the science and the people who are doing the science, there's not a direct application. Like, you know, we need, we need to save all those poor bodybuilders who can't gain muscle mass. Like, no, we have an epidemic of obesity. We've got lots of older folks, you know, who, are, who are, have sarcopenia, who are falling and breaking hips. There's so many more medical applications, obvious reasons why we would be doing science related to muscle growth and things that are secondary sort of to, to bodybuilding. So it's hard to get even those, those, except for people like Brad Schoenfeld, for instance, he's sort of the premier example that most people are probably um, familiar with, who are taking that information and trying to like create something that has some application. And even Brad, Brad comes on ter under terrible fire for the things he's done. I have a quote that I, I, we don't have to read it, but it's something I saw when he did a podcast with Fuad Abiyad not too long ago and saw it posted on a board and someone was saying, all this, all this research stuff is bullshit. Like someone just <laughs> threw it all out the water. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, which is, which is, un, which is too bad really because I could tell from the rest of that person's post and I could see why they would say that and see it would make sense to them. But I, I also can tell that they probably, they, they didn't watch the interview and they haven't read the science and they don't have an understanding of how that science is carried out. So there's this, it's a normal human function of human nature, but there's this kind of hypocrisy in that 
you see a lot of times the bros will say, well, that guy, you know, the guy with the pocket protector over there, obviously, you know, you wouldn't see him on the, on the street and think he's ever lifted a weight in his life. So we'll just throw out his opinions. And so at the same time, that person may have absolutely no idea of how that scientific study has been put together, what's going on in terms of uh, study design, statistical analysis, what it takes to carry those things out. They're, they're completely ignorant of, of the scientific method in that context as doing, rec doing resistance training exercise studies. And they're throwing away Brad's ideas because they think he's ignorant of how it, what it comes to training in the gym, which is not true, actually. Brad's competed in the past. He's a trainer for years. So they're basically, it's very, it can be a very hypocritical thing to think that the science is just bullshit when you really don't truly understand the science. So I've always, one of the things I've sort of tried to kept, keep in the front of my head is, is seek first to understand and only then to criticize. So that first step can take a long time. The second one's easy to jump to. <laughs> we do that really well. Like, ah, he's bullshit. Look at him. He's puny. What, what can he possibly know? It's like, hold on. What's he saying? I don't understand a thing he's saying. So I'm just going to criticize him and, and throw him out. So. I hate to see that. That's why I want to bring those people together, you know, because they're both good intentions. I don't think anyone's evil, but I, I want to see, I like to see that information translated as best as possible. So that's part of my mission to, to fill those gaps, so to speak, at least informationally speaking. Yeah. I always wonder like the psychology behind some of it. Like if someone's getting challenged outside their, you know, their comfort, like having some, someone kind of giving some information to you that's like, hey, you might be slightly wrong in this area. It is challenging. It might be even as deep as like your own, you know, inner core belief system, right? Like if you're, uh, and that's why we see extremes and maybe just culturally, we like to go to the extremes of like, I'm vegan or I'm carnivore or I'm Republican or I'm Democrat, right? It's like, I'm all bro or I'm all scientists. And a lot of times, most of these truths are kind of in the middle, but it's, it's hard to find that middle and kind of play both sides of the fence, which Scott, you're, you're on the fence and you can see both sides, right? <laughs> the, the science try, and, yeah. and in the trenches and you try. And I, it's even for me, it's been easy to like fall off the fence to one side. We're like, you know what? this is getting new in depth and it just I, in the trenches this is what I see screw it I'm going with that or you have a study come out that kind of pulls at your emotions and you start digging into that a little bit more so that balance is hard to f find I think for a lot of like even the listeners that don't have all this experience they're just bombarded by information bombarded by different types of experts that are the, the bro scientist or um, the lay press or uh, science authorities and it's like gosh who do you who do you even listen to now with that much information so maybe you can give some insight as so someone that doesn't have years of experience whether it's textbook or even a, as being a bro when you have someone that's presenting you with information what are some things that you might try to pull out of that person to disseminate if this is a a, a, a good person to listen to and that they have that balanced train of thought and, and weighing everything out. And that might get into kind of like being your own coach, right? Um, yeah. You know, what would be these traits in that coach? It's funny because I was thinking that that list would come up and I wrote an article for Elite FTS and I really, I, I created, um, I created something. I want to read it to you guys. This is at the beginning of this article. And 
So imagine, imagine you read this somewhere. Someone has told you this. And this is something that I wrote. And let me just read it to you and, and see what you think of it just in, in hearing this. Uh, minerals such as iron, Fe, zinc, Zn, and trace amounts of boron B begin accumulating during embryonic development in the tissues that later differentiate into skeletal muscle. These metals form the basis of the contractile machinery that imbues muscle cells with its force-producing ability, citation one, which we'll get to in a second. In adult mammals, dietary deficiencies in these elements have been associated with a variety of myopathologies and muscle weakness, whereas uh, iron, zinc, and chromium supplementation produce fiber growth, including hypertrophy and hyperplastic adaptations, citations two, citation two, even in the absence of external load, citation three. Sounds pretty cool, huh, right? It's just complete <laughs> bullshit. I just fabricated that. But here's the key. Here's the thing. I put citations in there. And this is one of the first rules I, I like to People think I'm sort of pretentious, like all the citations I always put after things I write. I mean, my your own bodybuilding coach book, it's like it's like a hundred pages of, of literature citations. It's ridiculous. Kind of, in a way. But here's the thing, each of I'm not coming up with those ideas. Those aren't based on some some artistic notion that I created out of thin air. It's not most of those things, unless I say so, aren't things that I've experienced and kind of come to the conclusion in the gym. Those things that are of scientific nature and those contentions are things that should have some justification. There should be some, some data someplace to support those ideas. And I, you will see people with PhDs, you'll see people who, who are, are to be authorities and experts talk about um, notions. And because of that, you know, you call them, they're Dr. Smith or Dr. Jones or what have you, or they've been presented as such, we have a natural, this is sort of a normal social norm to give them a certain amount of respect and not call them into question. Whereas in my mind, it should kind of be the opposite way around. If they're to be so easily believed, then they should have information to substantiate their contentions readily available, even in their head, or they can reference you to those things to back up their statements. And they should be called to carpet on that even more so than anyone else. So I mean, when I put these citations in, I think some people may have even read that and people skip the citations. People don't read those a lot of times because it's like what that is, but you can, you can Google a citation, just copy the whole thing, paste it in the Google and you'll find it on Google Scholar almost right off the bat. And then you can read and oftentimes you'll find that the citation may have nothing to do whatsoever with what was said. And I found that even in scientific research, when I'm like, I wonder why they're saying that. And I will go and try to trace the source of the information. And that's the bottom line of what I'm saying is the authority is the, is the person who's giving you this information. But oftentimes, he's not the source of the information. It's somewhere in the scientific literature if he's speaking as a scientist. So one of these, um, uh, the first citation was from Smith, Jay, and Doe, Jay, like as in Jane Smith and John Doe. 2011, genetic and dietary control of mammalian embryonic development, um, muscle tissue, and it was published in the Journal of Significant Results, which is completely fabricated. <laughs> the next one was um, published by Dee's Balls, and the third one was by Dave Tate, John Meadows, Shelby Starnes, Mark Dugdale, Amit Sapir, and Ken Hill, and it was in the Journal of Mice and Men. <laughs> I just made those up, and I think they're pretty fun when you go and go through and read those, but <clears throat> so it's very easy to bamboozle people with statements. You'll see this everywhere. It's, it's, it's ubiquitous. 
And it's not how things should be, in my opinion. That's not how people are trained as scientists. That's why you see all those references at the end of those. That's the standard for supporting your contentions. So if someone is saying something um, that is of scientific nature, I feel free. It's actually sort of their obligation to be able to say, you know, here's why I think that, or here's why I say that. I read a study once. I can find it for you. It's in my database or what have you, or maybe they can tell you exactly who did it. I, that's the more ideal situation. And that is, that's akin with people. It's in the same, it's on par with when people go into their doctors and their doctor says, take this. And they have no idea why they're taking it, what it does, what the side effects are. They just swallow that information hook, line, and sinker. Um, and so that, that trust and authority is given way too freely in my mind. Um, because ultimately, when it comes to choosing who to believe, you're the one who's making the decision. It's, they're not, it's not the expert who's, who's deciding what's true and false, it's you. They're giving you the information saying it's true, but it's ultimately up, you, up to you to make the decision whether that is actually something you're, gonna, you're going to believe and to what extent you're going to believe it. So the first thing I would do is say, ask those experts for deeper information, for more information. And sometimes, you know, sometimes you may just say, you know, um, like my, my advisor who's passed on now, he used to say, just say, show me the data, show me the data. And that's kind of, that runs through my head every single day probably it's like where where are the data support that if so if you say you know creatine supplementation increases muscle strength it's like okay well show me show me the data and then that person would point you to various research studies that have demonstrated that over the course of time with training creatine supplementation et cetera et cetera et cetera and those are the numbers so then you look at those data and you'd say okay well that's cool on average that happened but you know there's variability some people do better than others with creatine there are non-responders and there are extreme responders. So the data then tell you, okay, well, creatine's gonna do that on average, but it's possible that I might have a client who doesn't respond to creatine very well because they eat a lot of meat. There's various reasons why that might be. So that data and the underlying um, study give you the expanded view into that contention by the expert, which is really where the gold is. It's like, so how strong is this contention? Like, you can read, um, like in epidemiology, it's, it's pretty, it's a classical thing where you'll see, you know, some particular intervention, you know, has a significant effect on reducing LDL or reducing some risk factor for cardiovascular disease or whatever it might be. And in epidemiological studies, you've got thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people who've been studied. So if you look at those data, you can get a significant effect with like a 5% difference. So like, so I brought my, you know, my total triglycerides down from 200 to 190. It's like, okay, I mean, that's, it's 5%. Like, is that gonna really, what does that really mean for me? That was the average. And that was significant because you had 100,000 people. So if you, if someone says, oh, take this, it'll bring your total triglycerides down. On average, it will by this small amount, which was significant. But if you look at those data and you say, okay, it went from this to this on average, is that really worth the side effects of, you know, you know, liver disease and heartburn and all the other things that may come along with the drug or whatever it might be. So 
And that's an easy thing to do. You can get that, you can get that deep as to whether you can trust that, to what extent you can trust that information simply by finding a primary reference or getting one and just reading the abstract. You don't even have to dig in on the data. You can just see like it was a 5% difference, which was significant. But it's the difference, and this is something, I think Luke's probably heard me, we may have talked about this previously. There's something um, that's very important, I think, to, to glean out, and this is connected to your question, is the difference between practical significance and statistical significance. So the, the analogy I usually use is if you consider like the, the best 100 meter sprinters in the world, and the, these are the guys at the, uh, the Olympics, you know, in the final heat, if you ran, if you divvied them up between the, the first four and the last four, I think they have like eight in a heat maybe, and tried to do a statistical analysis of whether there was any difference in 100 meter dash time, I, I probably should go and do this to be honest. It wouldn't be hard to do it all. You might find nothing. Like there's no difference between first through fourth and fifth through eighth, statistically speaking. They're all clustered so close together, time-wise, within probably you know, 0.2 seconds, there's only four in a group that doesn't help with statistics at all. The more, the more you have, the more likely you are to find out if there's something systematically going on differently between the two groups. But I tell you what, the guy who gets the gold medal and he goes back and he's treated like big Rami's being treated right now back home. He's a hero because he won a gold medal and he defeated so-and-so is a heck of a lot different than most of the times the guys who got seventh or eighth. It's like you did well, but you didn't win. You weren't the winner. You know, and it might be a difference between whether they get uh, a Nike sponsorship or whatever it might be. So practical significance, practical significance is gigantic. Statistically speaking, you'd say it doesn't matter. The eighth place guy is as fast as the first place guy. He's in, in this particular study of finishers in that particular Olympics. So you say, so, so, so someone would say, you know, um, what's his name? Uh, Jamaican, who's the fastest sprinter. Paul guy. Usain Bolt or? Yeah. So someone would say, might say Usain Bolt's, he's no faster than, you know, so-and-so. Name a guy who got eighth. So it's like, well, <laughs> okay. Like you'd be like, what? Show me the data. Like you, 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 no one's going to, you would, you'd call him someone on that right off the bat. But it's like, well, Usain was in the, was, was in the group in the top four. And this guy was in the group in the top eight. And when we did the analysis on, on the top versus the bottom placers in the finals, there was no significant difference. It's like, okay. I can see how that sort of supports your contention, but this guy has never beaten Usain ever. He's never come close to beating. He's always like 0.3 seconds behind him. His best is 0.25 seconds slower than Usain's slowest race ever. So those are other data that don't support your contention, but you made a contention based on one particular study. So someone, someone makes something like, says something like that about Usain Bolt, of course you call him on it. That I think is a good habit for people to have, even if it's not like this crazy, you know, contention that you would immediately want to call into question just to say, well, yeah, tell me more about how you know that. Cause this is fascinating. I wouldn't have suspected that, or that doesn't, that doesn't match what I've noticed. Like every time I watch TV, Usain Bolt destroys everyone. He seems to be like far and away the fastest hundred meter sprinter I've ever seen. So why are you saying this? It seems, it seems to contradict my experience and that of others. And then they explain to you why, like, okay, well, thanks for the information. And now you know a little bit more about how those quote unquote experts support their contentions. That's a, that would be a very bizarre way for someone to support that contention. But 
here's the thing, and this is, this is another like, sort of an offshoot, is that when so, someone has been training, for, been training for five years, most people have made most of the gains by that time. And so they're looking for something new and different, right? There, there has to be some ace card, some trump card that they can add that's going to take them to the next level. And so they're looking for something new, different, unusual, off the beaten path. And when someone comes into the fitness scene and says, I've got the magic bullet, it's you're doing everything wrong. Here's what you need to do. Something totally different, new and novel to you. That's appealing because it fits the parameters of what you think needs to happen because what you've been doing ain't been working. So you need to find something totally different. And when someone, some expert says, you need to, you need to, you know, don't train once every two weeks, something like that, because this shows this, that, and the other, you'd want to ask that person. So why, why do you say that? And cut through the cult of personality that those people often have as experts. Just tell me why there was a, um, I can't remember his name right now, actually, anyway, but there was a guy who was recently on a podcast that I saw. He has like a home exercise and he's very, uh, he's one of those guys who, who part of his message is that weight training is just a waste of your time. And he has an alternative way to do things. And if you go to this person's website and you read through, takes you a little, you got to click a few times to get to where he has sort of his scientific discussion, um, which is supposed to support uh, his contentions about why his home training device is superior to regular weight training. There's some references in there. And of course I click on the references and there's no link to get to those. You have to, I have to go dig them up and find them, download them, look at them and read them. And it's like, that's not applicable at all in the way you're saying like what you're basically lying with these citations because the citation doesn't support what you're saying. And I was immediately kind of dubious of this because that doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't fit with my, my experience, my, you know, 40 years in the gym sort of suggests something other than what he was saying. But I just, I just went, I didn't have to talk to the individual. I just went to his website and I just took that extra step of looking, finding that research study. And then an average person could read the abstract and say, well, first of all, they didn't use his, his device. And this was, I can't even, it was so different from what he was saying that I can't even remember exactly what it was. It was obviously, it's like saying like, you know, the best food for tigers to eat and they cite something like, this is the best kind of worm to catch salmon. It's like, well, like, no, that doesn't really match. Like there's no, I don't see how you can take, you know, what salmon like to eat and what tigers like to eat and use that to support this. Just because salmon like worms doesn't mean tigers are gonna like worms. It's completely disconnected, but they'll put that citation there and people won't follow up on that. So calling people onto the carpet is a, is a really, really big one in my mind, at least. So, and it's fun to do too sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I think people shouldn't be scared to like, to, to question those putting out information in, in, in a uh, appropriate way. You don't feel like you're, you have to challenge them because, so, and that, I think that's a good one way to kind of know as well is, is how that expert might respond. I find those that jump to the defense really quickly likely feel under attack that, that might not have the backing to really support it potentially. 
But, uh, you know, I think if you approach it from, hey, I'm, I'm trying to learn more about this, where, where could you point me in the right direction? And you get that person to open up and actually share that with you. Because sometimes you might just get ignored trying to ask them, or you might get this defensive response back. So I think there's an, an appropriate way to, to address someone in that. Um, but say we have this, this expert that's putting out information. We've asked them these things and they've validated it. But then we want to like search into the, uh, that other side of the fence, right? Well, where, where's your, your proof in the pudding, right? Mm -hmm. Because in, in my mind, when I'm looking for someone to take information from, I like to see that education background that they can logically think through it, that they've done it to some extent themselves. Because just like you know, when, when we're in contest prep or peak week and you're suffering, like no one knows what that feels like unless you've actually done it. Yeah, um, and then you've, you've had the ability to take others through that with success. So if we have this expert figure that's giving us all the right information, but they have no clients to support, no in the trench experience, would this still be someone that you would consider that, that you would consider for information or for coaching? And I, I think a lot of times in, in coaching, what I see with the, a lot of these top gurus is that they don't have any science background, but they have incredible clients. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, damn, well, there's your proof right there. Like they have all this great success. And then that, I think that's what leads some of our, the, our bros and the people that just, you know what, science is all bullshit. I'm going to go with this guy because he, he produces the results and that's what matters. So how do we, how do we filter through that when, once we're seeing that type of, um, coaching knowledge being being put out so that that's another example in, in my mind at least of th those are those are case studies so to speak that he's putting forth and they're not published anywhere scientifically but the question then becomes to what extent does what he's done with those clients apply to me so if you've got uh and there could be a variety of things that you need to know in order to to evaluate that so where did, where was this person once? So like one of my, one of my favorites and not, we're not, not now my Facebook profile got, got, um, hacked, but my, my old one, I was friends with a guy named Franco Santoriello and he was the face guy, face, face man for cybergenics, which is this program that was way old. It's one of the first times I ever saw, um, where they would take someone who's sort of in their, in their sort of off-season worst, kind of like what Lee Priest with the Kentucky Fried Chicken thing, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, and then you look at, if you didn't know who Lee was, and that he'd been in such good shape, you would think that was a miraculous transformation. So when you're looking at this evidence that a particular coach might have of miraculous transformations, and you look before and after, you need to be able to contextualize that with who are you looking at? What are they capable of? Did they take them to that, that place where it looked phenomenal for the very first time ever? which was far and away beyond where they ever been, or do they just bring them back to a previous state of being contest ready? So that, that's, a, that's one example. Um, and that what that points to is Franco Santoriello was someone who had, you know, I, I can't remember if he ever got a pro card, but phenomenal physique. One of those guys who was like, nowadays he would have been a pro for sure. And so the genetics were more than likely there. And the genetics are more than likely better than most of the people who are looking to some of these coaches um, have for making the gains that you see in those clients who are the ones they put, you know, out for the advertising. Sometimes, not always. So the question becomes is who are they, who are they doing this with? Are they doing this with someone who's got phenomenal genetics, who can get away with eating two thirds of the prescribed diet and still make 
the phenomenal gains, or are they taking people who are very much like me, who have to travel the road that I have to travel and making those things happen. So that's where, where you can sort of, um, and there's, uh, I'll just give them a plug. Like Victor Black is someone who, who probably pisses a lot of people off, I think, because he just <laughs> says shit as he will. But he does a really nice job of like outlining what's happening week by week with his clients and what he does with them. He's posted stuff up on Facebook and sometimes Instagram, I think. So he's very open um, with who he's working with and where they're going from and what, where they were previously. So you have some context is like, if I see, you know, five clients who made tremendous transformations and I know kind of who they are from the background that's been given, like the, that person sounds just like me. He was stuck in a rut for four years. You know, he was maybe using high levels of PEDs and it wasn't working. Maybe it was too much. And they dropped that back and they restarted to clean up his diet and they changed his training and all of a sudden he started making gains. Seems like he was in a similar set of circumstances that I'm in right now. That gives me a sense that maybe he can do the same thing for me. It's not a certainty, but that's a heck of a lot different than we took someone like Franco Santoriello or Lee Priest, you know, after, you know, 1900 buckets of Kentucky fried chicken and then just brought him back to the same place that he'd been for, you know, many, many, many times in his pro career. Lee Priest, you know, Lee Priest looked better at 18 than probably 99% of the people who have ever looked who are, whoever bodybuilded, really. I mean, he was phenomenal. He still is phenomenal. So that's super, super important, I think, to, to figure that out before you can, before you can know. Um, of course, in the, in the U.S., this is different in the U.K., and, but, you know, PEDs, steroid use is illegal. So if you're, you can't talk about that openly unless you want to basically make it known to the officials that you're doing things that are against the law. So that aspect is, can be a huge part. You can take someone who is a natural and load them up and do all sorts of incredible things with them and make great gains without having any knowledge that might be applicable to someone who doesn't want to follow that route, who wants to stay natural, who wants to use conservatively or use HRT or what have you. So <clears throat> that's kind of a hidden aspect of these things, which makes sense to, to hide. <clears throat> and of course, that's also one thing that another, another sort of category of coaches will do where they make themselves known as drug gurus. They're the person who's going to, they're going to show you how to, how to do the secret, you know, how to make use of PEDs to get all the things that are the secrets of the pros, so to speak. And I don't think drugs are the secrets of the pros. I think genetics are the secrets of the pros, <laughs> to be honest, and maybe the genetic response to drugs, but, and a lot of hard work. That's not to say that's, that's not the case, but, there has to be some genetic component there. So there's other, there's other um, uh, coaches who will basically, they sort of uh, leverage their whole approach on being, you know, kind of a drug guru to some degree and either making that known or not making that known. So you have to find that out and figure out whether that's a path you want to follow. It's such for a bodybuilder, it can be such a shiny, it's like Gollum and the, and the ring from Lord of the Rings. Like, I want that so bad. I'm willing to do anything for it, anything. And that is what can be taken advantage of by coaches if they dangle the right ring in front of you. Um, but that ring can be completely imaginary and illusory if what they're dangling is in the form of transformation photos or progress pictures for people who are not like you, genetically speaking, or, or, not, or doing things that you're not willing to do. 
So are there, are there clients and their, their clientele, is there any external validity from what they've been doing to what you were willing to do is kind of the big question to ask. So you can fish that out when you just, when you ask, just start asking questions. I think a good coach, in, in my mind, a good coach will be willing to ask within some reason, willing to answer pretty much all the questions that you'd ask about training, like what's your basic training strategy, your basic dietary strategy, you know, will you help me with this, that, and the other? And you can weed through those, through those folks decently well, but you just, again, just like with the experts, you gotta be willing to ask those questions and not, and not succumb to the, the, the Lord of the Rings effect and say, I just, oh, whatever, I'll just do whatever you say and, you know, just tell me. Because next thing you know, those, there's very much, I think there's a lot to say, and this can happen with women, especially, I think sometimes, is that once you start making those gains and that progress, it's a hard, it's a hard uh, wagon to get off of, so to speak. It's a hard thing to stop because things are looking so great. And of course, your self-esteem and your sense of self becomes connected with that. And the next thing you know, you're on a one-way path and you don't know how to get back to where you once were. And the coaches know this and they will take advantage of it. Some, the evil ones, so to speak, will at least. So I think that got kind of to your question. No, no, it definitely did. And I think, so whether you're a scientific figure putting out education or you're just putting out client progress, there's, there's a way to filter through that for the individual just by asking questions, being inquisitive and trying to, to pull that out. So I, I think that was both really insightful. And I know we're coming up on, we were a little past this hour, Scott. So um, oh. I, I don't want to take, take, take you up your time too much. I longer, got all day, but... man. This is what I do. <laughs> our, our eight hour podcast. <laughs> I've done three and a half before a few times. So it's no problem. Well, no, I think there are, you know, this whole thing about being an, an edu- evidence-based coach, like you said, it's not this one definition and it's in, in, in social media and everything I'm seeing, it's becoming a title. I'm an evidence-based coach. And really mm-hmm. there's a, a large gray area to operate within that and to be sure you're multidimensional in pulling lots of information from your, your in the trench experience, your scientific literature, and being able to disseminate and understand where the errors lie within all these different type of, of evidences, whether it's science literature based mm-hmm. or it's just that empirical, hey, this is what I notice. And that's a, that's a strength to derive. And I think touching on if you're not this you know, person that's been training for 20 years or you haven't, don't have a PhD, how do we really filter through that? And for the information that is being disseminated by these people, and it's as simply as just being inquisitive and asking questions and trying to use your approach to try to filter if, if this person does have all the backing of being a, of logical mind and seeing where those clients came from that maybe it relates to you. So um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people will get a, a good takeaway of, of applying that. And uh, do you have any, any closing thoughts on where we should be maybe headed in, in this community for trying to utilize evidence and empirical, empirical what we see in the trenches um, as coaches? You know, I think one thing that maybe could be, it, it could be a good sort of habit for all of us to kind of apply is to check ourselves too. You know, I, I, one of the things with, with science is that, you know, as you, we, scientists, there's, a, there's actually a replication um, 
issue in, in the scientific in the scientific world just in general where studies will go and try to replicate a previous finding using the same exact experimental design and not find that that's the case. It's actually become kind of a, a big issue. And um, so we tend to sort of take a, a study and just think of that, well, that's kind of done, we'll put that in the past. And that's, you know, how things are, as far as we can tell. And I think that's a nor normal human tendency we have as coaches is to, to some degree, sort of stop questioning our own own methods and thoughts. And, you know, I, I like with the me and the no carbs thing that, you know, we talked about earlier, it's like, I, I would have, you know, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have asked anyone else to do that because I knew how diabolical it could be and I knew what, what impact it could have. But like one of the things that I did was um, I took my set reps down lower because I was finding that, you know, I was basically just crashing, you know, all my sets I was hitting a wall on because I was running out of glycogen. So instead of doing sets of like 10 or 12, I do sets of like six to 10 and then sometimes even drop sets. And that, that shifts the reliance on the creatine phosphate, the creatine phosphate system and a little bit less on glycogen. And I could still bang out those sets. Of course, I could still lift close to the same loads for those number of reps. Whereas if I tried to lower the load and get the same reps, I would have had a lesser stimulus because I just couldn't get the reps lacking in the glycogen. So I kind of figured, I did something that was contrary to where, what I thought made sense. And I said, just said, no, that's kind of a, don't do that. Like you need to carb up. You need to have some carbs. If you want to continue to train, keep that as a rule during contest prep. And I just sort of, Maybe I'm a renegade. Maybe I'm just still an idiot. I'm still the same knucklehead who just fell in love with weight training when he was 11. But I just decided I'm just going to do this and see what happens. And I dove in contrary to what my otherwise good sense would have suggested and trained that way. And I actually survived it. And I kind of found a workaround. And it's because I kind of I allowed myself to doubt my own previous contentions and to think, well, maybe, maybe you're not right. Maybe there is some way this can possibly happen. And and I, and I was able to keep training pretty hard and I found a workaround. So I think that's the, the thing too, is we need to catch ourselves. We need to catch one another. And then when you, when you read research or you see someone make a contention, the first thing, you know, as I mentioned before, is to sort of think critically about it. Like how can I contradict that person's notion if they're not completely in agree with, agreement with me? And I, I think a smarter way to go think of it is like, okay, first, why would they be saying that? When, what ways would that make sense? And I think people have done like debates in particular, but on like debate teams, like you want to understand the person's, both sides of the argument as best you possibly can. So then you can understand the full issue. So someone says something that doesn't make sense to you, think to yourself, why would they say that? What is maybe lacking in the understanding? What do they know that I don't know? Um, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll refer to Jordan Peterson, who, who talks about, you know, listening to pretty much everyone that you may run into as if there's someone who could maybe teach you something, regardless of their level of knowledge or what have you. So sometimes, you know, you run into someone um, in the gym or online or what have you might say something and you're like, this person, they just started five weeks ago. What could they possibly know they could teach me? But they may remind you of something that you'd long forgotten. You know, or maybe give you a thought if you're paying close attention to them. It's like, you know, that's not a bad idea. You know, I mean, do you remember, you probably, John, you probably remember this. Like when, when people first started putting, especially John Meadows got a lot of shit for people putting bands on machines at one point in time. You know, you put like, why are you always putting all these rubber bands on machines? You know, it's what the hell's, there was a contingent of people who really disliked that. They thought it was totally hokey. 
Yeah, even even when uh, Louis Simmons, the lead, yeah. coming into powerlifting, bringing bringing that in, like the bands and the change. It's like, it, it, you know, that was he was like the kind of the the outcast powerlifter in a way. And then that, well, that's how John was was introduced to it too mm-hmm. through them. And oh yeah, and it's still it's still there's some fight back. But now you see like everyone's using bands and right. on, on everything, right? Yeah, it kind of kind of comes around full circle. So. Yeah, I think just first taking in those, as, as crazy as they may be, those notions. And I think the thing, at least for me, and just for just people in general, coaches communicating with coaches and coaches communicating with potential clients, is if, if you, someone says something and they're adamant about it and you read it and take it in and you say, well, that's just complete hogwash. There's just, I can't make any sense of that as a contention or as an idea or a concept. It just just runs contrary to everything I possibly know, then the next thing to think about is like, why would they say that? So like this person I mentioned on one of the discussion boards who was criticizing, you know, just throwing all of Brad's information out, throwing out the baby with the bath oil, or it's like, this is just worthless. Um, why would he say that? It's like, well, he doesn't have an understanding of the science from other things I've seen him say in that picture thread. He's just, he's throwing out some words that don't make sense scientifically. It's not as someone to be, he just doesn't understand the science. That's why he says that. So the issue is, is there could be that maybe giving him a better understanding of the science would help him to glean something from what Brad has to say. So understanding why the person you disagree with has that contention tells you how and why they're thinking. And that's a step closer to being able to communicate more effectively in both directions. So like John, if you say, you know, Scott, you need, to, you need to fast for the next week. No, no food whatsoever. And I'd be like, I'm oh, sorry, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I need to eat. And you're like, no, you have to do that. It's the only way to make gains. I would say, okay, so tell me why you think that. And maybe you, you have a story of the time when, you know, you went to India and you fasted for a week with this guru, you know, and you completed yourself out and you had like this spiritual enlightenment. You came back completely renewed your, your training and your progress. And for you, that was just a life altering epiphany filled Satori filled experience that made you into the bodybuilder that you are today. It was like the most trans I was just making this shit up, but let's say that was the case. Now I understand why you would say that because you want to help me and you, and what worked so well for you, you want to work for me. Well, that's a great thing to know. Some people might just say this guy's full of shit. He's off his rocker. But you had that experience. So now that I understand you, I might say, well, John, I, but I'm not in where you, I'm not in that position that you were in. I haven't lost my motivation because I'm just making this up. But I, I'm not in a place where I'm like, I want to keep doing this or not. I need to go find myself and go to India and et cetera, et cetera. But I appreciate what you went through. I went through something similar, you know, in this aspect of my life. And then you know why that information, why you're putting that forth and how and why it might be applicable. For some people, that might be a great approach going fast and just step away from everything they've possibly known and restart. So I just made that whole little, that whole uh, soliloquy up, that little monologue, but that's the kind of the notion is like, try to understand the person who you most often would pit against you and make into an enemy or, you know, the person who's contrary to you. And when you can do that, then you can maybe come together with them and maybe learn something from them that you didn't know that you didn't know you didn't know because you don't know the things you don't know until you know them, so to speak. So. Yeah. I think I'll that's a beautiful that. point of just keep always keeping an open mind. 
no matter how much you think you know. And e even now it's like, gosh, if I could just remember even uh, a third of, of the stuff that I forgot, like I would be so far ahead. But I, when I hear other people talk about it, it's like it brings back things into, into my mind. But just questioning yourself and keeping that open mind, I think will keep you progressing forward as a coach or, or even as just an individual, if you're not even coaching people, but yeah. they call that and, beginner's mind. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and then, yeah, child, like, like a child's mind, right? Yeah. No, or no mind. <laughs> thing, <laughs> right. right. Yeah. So, well, well, Scott, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate your time so much. I have the fortitude book. I have be oh, your cool. own bodybuilding coach. Um, these, these were, yeah, they're great reads. When people ask, what's a good book that I should have? Like, I'm trying to learn about nutrition and do my own bodybuilding. Like there's a book made for that. It's called be your own <laughs> bodybuilding coach. And it'll take you through the steps of like, just like we talked about today, like trying to, to have that self-development as a bodybuilder, but also have that thought process of challenging different authority figures in the right way, but also mm. great, filled with awesome information on um, science-based logical thought, uh, nutrition training, but also in the trench experience from, from someone that's been doing it for 40 years. So yeah. Scott, if anyone wants to reach out to you, learn more about what you're doing, where, where could they find you at? They can go to drscottstevenson.com or just really, you can just Google Scott Stevenson bodybuilder and everything pops up pretty readily. So you can put Scott Stevenson meat hit in there. That works as well. Like that comes <laughs> up, you get the same Google hits. They're identical, I think. So. Well known in the, in the Google area. Yeah. So far. Well, well, Scott, thank you so much again. And You're welcome. I appreciate it. And that'll be all for us today on J3U Podcast. Um, talk to you next time. Adios. All right.